So welcome to LSE and to this government department uh, lecture. And um, my name is Jonathan Hopkin. I'm a reader in comparative politics in the government department here. Um, and it is my very pleasant duty to be chairing this, this talk. Um, and I'd like to introduce our two speakers who are um, on my immediate left, Larry Elliott, who is economics editor of The Guardian. Um, and has been actually at The Guardian since 1988, according to Wikipedia. Um, and uh, as well as writing, obviously, a lot in The Guardian about economic affairs. Um, and I think very good um, port of call for anyone trying to find out what's going on in the British political economy. Um, he's also co-authored four books with Dan Atkinson, who is on his left. And he's the economics editor of The Mail on Sunday. Before that, he was a financial correspondent with The Guardian. And together they've written uh, four books over the last 15 years or so. Um, and I can say completely truthfully that I've read them all, um, more or less when they were published, and I found them all very compelling. Um, uh, the first one was Age of Insecurity, which in the 1990s, in the heady days of the late 90s, with Tony Blair, New Labour, and a booming economy, they um, uh, wrote a book to tell us that it wasn't so good, that we were actually seeing a rise in insecurity due to the nature of, uh, of this very flexible kind of capitalism that had been developing in, in the 90s and showing the downside of what, at that time at least, was economic growth. Um, after that, in 2007, I think it was, they published a book called Fantasy Island, which I think is an amazingly prescient book, uh, which basically suggested that the British economy around uh, 2006 or so when it was being written was a house of cards just waiting to collapse catastrophically. Um, and the book had hardly uh, actually been published uh, before that happened. Okay? And I thought this is a very... Um, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how they basically called it. You know, they had identified all the fundamental weaknesses of the British and world economy at, the, at that time and described them beautifully. Um, after that, they wrote a book called The Gods Have Failed about the uh, financial crash, and now they've published a book called Going South about why Britain will have a third world economy by 2014, which is moving up fast. Um, and, you know, given their happy knack of actually uh, predicting events, I'm afraid this is, uh, I found it quite a depressing read, but a fascinating one, and, and they're going to talk about this book uh, tonight. So, um, first, uh, Larry, and, and then Dan. Welcome and thanks for being here. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, Wikipedia got it right for once. I have been at The Guardian since 1988, um, a very long time. And uh, Dan and I had uh, a very, very um, good working relationship. People often say, how do you actually write books together? And I say that we are like the Lennon McCartney of the uh, book writing world. <laughs> Uh, only without the money and the unparalleled talent. Um, uh, he writes a bit, I write a bit, and we try and sort of piece them together into one seamless whole. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's kind of hard to do a lecture in the same sort of fashion, but I think you should see it as a sort of, this, is, this should be a sort of a bog-off lecture, really. Buy one, get one free. So you're, you're getting both of us for the price of one. So let me start. Here's a list. Blackburn Rovers, Aston Villa... Middlesbrough, Oldham Athletic, West Bromwich Albion, Bolton Wanderers, Sunderland, Chelsea, Bradford City, Sheffield United. Yes, you're absolutely right. A list of English football teams. But a list of what? Teams with foreign managers? Wrong. Teams that have won the FA Cup? Wrong again. In fact, it's the top of Division I of the Football League 
as it stood at the end of the 1913-14 season, just as the First World War was about to break out. Now, to a football fan, there are two striking things about that list, that top ten from 1913-14. Firstly, it doesn't include Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool or Tottenham Hotspur, all of whom were languishing in the bottom half of the table. And secondly, only four of that top ten are currently playing in what is now known as the Premiership, and only one, Chelsea, seriously challenges for honours. The other six clubs have been relegated and are now playing in the lower leagues. So what do you think? Be honest with yourself. Is Britain and Manchester United in 1914 poised to leap up the league table and with its best years ahead of it? Or is it an Oldham Athletic heading in the wrong direction? It's our contention that what happens to football teams can happen to nations and that Britain is currently like a team battling against relegation from the world's economy's premiership. We don't have much confidence that it will avoid the drop. Now, we understand that's a start message. We fully appreciate that. But it's only by confronting the truth that the UK has any hope of getting out of its current mess. Public policy in Britain is conducted and has been conducted for so long as if Britain was a Manchester United or an Arsenal. It isn't. It's more like Aston Villa, a club that was great once but is great no longer. And just as the fans of struggling football clubs delude themselves that the signing of one new striker will restore the team to its former glory, so the past hundred years have seen quick fix follow quick fix for the UK economy. Sometimes they've worked, let's be fair. I mean, sometimes they've worked, for a while at least. Decline has been arrested, sometimes for a decade or more. There have been even periods when Britain has climbed up the league table a couple of places. Uh, but the trend has been clearly downwards. In reality, it has been many decades since Britain was a Manchester United or anything like it. And Dan will talk in more depth in a minute about the state of Britain as the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of the First War approaches. But before I turn back the clock, let me just briefly set the scene. Britain's now nine months into a double-dip recession, the first since the mid-1970s when the long post-war boom ended with the OPEC oil embargo and when inflation hit 26%. The economy is 4% smaller than it was when the downturn began in early 2008, and recovery has been slower than it was after the Great Depression. At the current rate of progress, it will take until, nine, until 2014 for output to get back to where it was in 2008. And if you assume the UK has a trend rate of output growth of 2.5%, which it probably doesn't, then the cost of the downturn is somewhere north of £200 billion. The, current out, the latest current account figures show a deficit of £20 billion in the quarter. Britain has not run a surplus invisible trade for 30 years. Real incomes have fallen for the past three years. According to the IFS, it will be 2016 or 2017 before they return to levels reached in 2004. The banking system is big, bust and corrupt. Two of the big high street banks, RBS and Lloyds, are part-owned by the state and would have fallen over had they not been taken under the state's wing. Those two, together with the rest of the financial system, are being supported by quantitative easing and by the Bank of England's latest attempt to get credit flowing again, the funding for lending scheme. The bank was certainly very slow to see the recession coming, but has been making up for lost time. It has already bought £375 billion worth of gilts through QE and looks likely to embark on a fifth tranche of electronic money creation next month. Bank rate has been pegged at its emergency level of 0.5% for almost four years, comfortably the lowest it's been since the old lady was founded in 1694. We know of no city analyst who thinks it likely that Mervyn King, who retires as governor next June, will announce an increase in the cost of borrowing before he leaves the bank. Going to the other end of town, 
Since the recession began, the Treasury has borrowed almost 550 billion, doubling the national debt in the process. In short, Britain has been provided with a monetary and fiscal stimulus unprecedented in its history. This has been provided by 14 members of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee and two Chancellors of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling and now George Osborne. To misquote Churchill, never has so much been spent by so few for so little. Uh, it could be worse. Yeah, it really could be. Without the stimulus here and elsewhere, it would be a case of the 1930s redux. And there's another cause for comfort. Britain could be in the euro, trapped in what William Hague memorably called a burning building with no exits. That was one bullet, thanks to Gordon Brown, Britain did dodge. Sadly, though, it was a rare moment of good sense in a century of blunder, fudge and self-delusion that persists even now with the government's fantasy of strong growth, economic balancing and expansionary fiscal contraction. Listening to George Osborne or Mervyn King give their forecast of what's going to happen to the economy is a bit like watching Michael Palin's pet shop owner in Monty Python's Dead Parrot sketch. Remember the scene. Paling is trying to persuade John Cleese that the parrot is not really dead. The bird, he agrees, has been nailed to its perch, but only because otherwise it would have muzzled up to the bars, bent them apart with its little beak, and vroom! Listen, mate, said Cleese. This bird wouldn't go vroom if you put four million volts through it. What we've discovered in the past five years is that the economy is firmly nailed to its perch. It's incapable of going vroom. There's precious little to rebalance the economy with. Sure, Britain has real and enduring strengths. It has some world-beating companies. It retains a global presence in aerospace, pharmaceuticals, and there is growth potential in chunks of the service sector, not just the traditional staples of banking insurance, but architecture, management consultancy, and software. The BBC is world-class, so is the Army, so are many of our universities, including this one. But the revenues from the economy's strong suits are not nearly big enough to compensate for big shortfalls in manufacturing, food, tourism, and increasingly over the past decade, oil and gas. North Sea production papered over many of the cracks in the final quarter of the 20th century, flattering the balance of payments and allowing governments to live well beyond their means. The economy was hugely and dangerously reliant in the boom years on bubble sectors, not just housing and financial services, but on the other bits of the economy that were dependent on the spin-offs from rising asset prices, retailing, construction, and the public sector. Now the bubbles have burst. There is no equity withdrawal to plump up consumer spending. There is no rake-off from the city to recycle into higher public spending for the depressed regions. That's why growth is so weak, why rebalancing is a fantasy, and why the fiscal deficit is getting bigger despite the government's austerity programme. This is the price you pay for turning your country into a giant hedge fund when the bets go wrong. There'll be more of where we are now later, but uh, let's go back in time. Clamber into my TARDIS and I'll take you back to Britain as it was in the summer of 1914 when the world was on the brink of war and, and, and skate through how we got to where we are now. 1914, it's a world transformed by technology. The American economist Robert Gordon recently wrote a paper comparing the big inventions of the late 19th century, electricity, the internal combustion engine, running water, indoor toilets, communications, entertainment, chemicals and petroleum with today's crop of new inventions. In Gordon's view, the crop at the end of the 19th century were far more important than those today. That's not really the point of what I'm saying here. What, what is important is that Britain was not at the cutting edge of those new products at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. It was a country that had been the first to industrialise and stuck with the old products and the old way of doing things, even when times were moving on. 
Even in sectors where Britain concentrated resources, coal mining, for example, it was far slower to embrace modern methods that were boosting productivity in countries overseas. In 1914, half the coal mined in America was extracted using machines. In Britain, 92% was hewn using picks in the traditional manner. Of course, there was concern even then that Britain might be losing its industrial supremacy, and that had been evident even in the country's mid-Victorian heyday. The Playfair Commission of the late 1860s bemoaned that other countries possessed good systems of education for the masters and managers of factories, and Britain had none. A later Royal Commission in the 1880s warned that the Europeans had surpassed Britain in science-based industries and were more efficient in the way they organised their manufacturing. By the time war broke out, despite the fact that Britain had the world's biggest merchant navy and the Royal Navy was the biggest in the world also, it was still responsible for well over and was still um, the rot had already set in. In what should be seen as a warning sign to the United States, the Boer War was a classic case of imperial overreach. Growth had been disappointing for decades. Britain was living off the proceeds of its considerable overseas investments. The US and Germany were already bigger and, more importantly, fundamentally stronger economies. So what, you might say? Britain's original industrial supremacy was a freak of history. There was no reason the country that dominated the first Kondratiev cycle should go on to dominate the second. That's a fair point. America and Germany were bigger countries. In America's case, it was blessed with abundant resources, skilled and ambitious workers emigrating from Europe, and virtually unlimited land. It was inevitable that Britain would have to cede top spot. That's a fair point also. Britain's problem for the next 40 years was that it failed to recognise that the days of economic supremacy were over forever and it needed to adjust. The decades that followed were dominated by determination to turn the clock back. The doomed insistence on returning to the gold standard the pre-war parity was the first, but sadly not the last, example of imperial delusion. The IMF uh, last week had harsh words to say about Britain's mix of tight monetary and fiscal policies after the First World War, noting that economic performance was very poor, as indeed it was. The end of the First World War had seen a sharp spike in inflation followed by a deep recession, even deeper than the one we've just suffered. The response from the bank was a severe dose of deflation. Interest rates were kept high to allow the pound to rise and thus return to the gold standard, which it eventually did in 1925. Spending was also cut aggressively as a result of the so-called Geddes Axe, the economy tanked. Industrial strife caused by the attempt to drive down wages, necessary to make Britain more competitive because of the overvaluation of the exchange rate, led to the general strike of 1926. The minority Labour government of 1929 carried on with the same policies. Cuts in unemployment pay during the early stages of the Great Depression led to the crisis in September 1931, when Britain finally came off the gold standard. This was followed by a relatively successful period in which devaluation of the pound, cheap money and protectionism resulted in solid growth. The 1930s were marked by a suburban housing boom and the start of a belated diversification of the economy into the new growth areas of manufacturing, such as cars and planes. Even so, output in 1938 was barely higher than it had been in 1918, and unemployment remained high. What's more, it proved to be an all-too-brief interlude. After the Second World War, Britain was effectively broke. Keynes memorably called it an economic Dunkirk. <coughs> Salvation of a sorts came in the form of an American loan and later martial aid, of which Britain, in fact, got more than any other European country. 
The help allowed politicians to indulge the notion that Britain could afford to strut the stage as a world player with defence commitments to match, pay for a new welfare state and rebuild the economy for peacetime. Other nations decided to concentrate on just one of these, obje of the, just one of these objectives. France, for example, experienced years of consumer austerity after the Second World War as resources were diverted into building productive capacity through centralised control of the economy. Britain, by contrast, thought it could have it all. It couldn't. Now, the big psychological break for Britain came in 1956 with the Suez Crisis, and that was the moment the scales dropped from the eyes at last. Britain was no longer a great power. Instead, it had to do what a real great power, America, said, or face the consequences that Washington would pull the plug on Sterling. So from 1956 onwards until the end of the century, the search was on for the magic ingredient, the philosopher's stone of growth that would arrest the, the economy's decline. For us, the remedy is simple and always has been. To be successful, Britain has to do what France, Germany and Japan did in the immediate post-war years and what the tiger economies in Asia have done more recently. It needs to be honest with itself about its true predicament, improve the quality of its workforce and its management and find a way of paying its way in the world. Instead, there have been a series of quack doctor remedies that have failed to arrest the decline. The Macmillan government of the late 1950s, early 1960s, toyed with French indicative planning. Harold Wilson had his national plan, made stillborn by the decision to eschew devaluation early on. Ted Heath, in a government that lasted less than four years, tried three separate uh, magic solutions, proto-monetarism, a dash for growth, and membership of the European Economic Community, as it then was. Heath left office with Britain riven by industrial strife and a three-day week and with inflation on course for a peacetime record. Wilson and Callaghan governments that followed engaged in crisis management and in effect held the fort until the arrival of Mrs Thatcher in 1979. Like Heath, she had a rather more eclectic approach to macroeconomic policy than people give her credit for, using at various times the PSBR, broad money, narrow money, shadowing the German mark, finally membership of the exchange rate mechanism as an anchor for inflation. None of them worked particularly effectively. Her 11 years in power included two slices of deep recession with a period of strong growth sandwiched in between. Thatcher's supply-side agenda involved taming the trade unions and privatising industry, although rather more cautiously and selectively than her successors, in an attempt to improve Britain's poor productivity record. She had some limited success in this, particularly in the manufacturing field. Her real revolution, though, was Big Bang, this was born of the belief that Britain's future rested not in manufacturing, some of which might perhaps be rescued by mud investment, but by financial services. The old way of doing things in the city, slow, stuffy, full of restrictive practices, was to be replaced by a modern financial sector in which there would be, no, in which there would be more competition, openness to overseas banks, and fewer regulations. So what followed was a period of rapid financial deregulation in which credit controls were abolished, mortgage queues became a thing of the past, and building societies were allowed to become banks. Lending exploded. Uh, in the first wave of this, loans were provided to allow people to buy their own council homes. Later, loans secured against property provided spending power when real incomes were squeezed, as the trade unions were no longer to exert the same sort of bargaining power in the labour market. In the two decades that followed Big Bang, the size and power of the financial sector grew. There was political capture of the Treasury to ensure that politicians knew their place. Regulation became not so much light touch as no touch. The city was at the frontier of financial innovation, so-called. And then came the crash. Like North Sea or financialization in the past quarter of a century 
had enabled us to downplay and in some cases ignore the glaring defects of the economy and the challenges it faced. In our book, we list some of them. This is the first generation in living memory that cannot take it for granted that we'll be better off than the last. We are a nation of debt addicts and cold turkey is proving dreadfully hard. Large numbers of the population are functionally illiterate and virtually unemployable. A pension time bomb is ticking and is about to go off. As a country, we have no long-term plan for what to do when the oil and gas fields finally run dry and the ageing nuclear power stations have to be mothballed. The taxes we pay are insufficient to pay for the welfare state we think we're entitled to. The banking system is dysfunctional and a potentially ruinous liability for the state. Most of our exports go to Europe, which is going through an existential crisis. That's quite a list. But what the hell, the Olympics were a success, weren't they? <laughs> Actually, we think that the real lesson of the Olympics supports the argument I made earlier and the one we make in going south. Uh, at the Atlanta Games in 1996, the UK won just one gold medal. And I remember being at a Guardian editorial conference during the navel-gazing about our lack of sporting prowess uh, that followed. And uh, somebody helpfully compiled a list of the sports where Britain had world champions. From memory, it included snooker, darts, bar billiards, tiddlywinks, anything, in fact, that involved drinking large amounts of, <laughs> of, of, of real ale and not worrying too much about whether you had a beer gut. Uh, I exaggerate, but not by all that much. What happened was that the UK sports establishment fessed up to how bad things were. They came up with a long-term plan that laid down where they wanted to be, and they backed the plan with abundant resources. Is there anything remotely similar happening in the wider economy? Well, if you really think that, I suggest it's time for you to get real. Two, two words, I think, sum up where we are now. I didn't come to this August University, I went to Cambridge uh, a long, long time ago, and back in the 1970s, uh, scrawled on a lamppost in the middle of Parker's Peace, which is the slab of green space in the middle of Cambridge that separates the university and Cambridge the rest of the town, uh, these two words are scrawled. Reality checkpoint. That's where we are, and it's where Dan will take up the story. Well, thank you very much. I think Larry's left me in a rather miserable spot, but, uh, but as that's the whole idea of the book, I can't really complain. I've never been quite sure about this Lennon and McCartney business. My understanding was that you guys wanted uh, Gilbert and George this evening, uh, but they weren't available, so you went for the next best thing. Uh, I think one of the disadvantages of our type of book, compared with, say, fiction, is that the authors can be held to account. I'm not sure we like that too much. They can be held to account fairly quickly for their prognoses for the economy, and for any predictions they may have made. By contrast, if you write a book, a sensitive evocation of <coughs> working-class life in North London in the 50s or something, it's either a hit with the readers and reviewers, or maybe the other way around, or it isn't. And the best you can hope for is what they call cult status, <coughs> which we know something about, uh, which means not many people read it, and with a bit of luck in 30 years' time, someone will decide it was a masterpiece. In our game, however, it's rather more immediate in fact, what is rather more immediate, to use uh, Larry's expression, is the reality check. The authors recount a number of happenings, and then they predict that X, Y, or Z will happen. We were foolish enough to put 2014 on the front of our book, and I'd been greeted by a certain grand personage at our sister paper, the Daily Mail, with cries of, hello, Nostradamus. Uh, I'm not quite sure that that's entirely flattering, given that as far as I can figure out, Nostradamus got about three-quarters of his predictions completely wrong. 
anyway, we say that X, Y, or Z will happen, and it won't be long before the reader at large will be able to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to those predictions, and by extension to the general case that we have made. Actually, that's completely fine by me. I recall as a sixth form a reading just published books on current affairs, such as Britain in Agony by Richard Clutterbuck and The National Front by my future guardian colleague Martin Walker. And I was absolutely thrilled to find that things had just that had just happened were actually contained within their pages. It would have been about the same time, I remember, that there was a mayor of New York who had the alarming habit of buttoning-holding citizens as they went about their daily business and demanding, how am I doing? Perhaps they didn't find it alarming. They breed them hard over there, but I know I should have been alarmed. Going South was published in mid-June. Four months later, in the words of the long-ago mayor, how are we doing? In other words, given our thesis that Britain is on course to exit the developed world and exhibit soon all the features of a developing, or strictly speaking, an undeveloping economy, have events tended to support this line of argument or to undermine it? Well, in a nutshell, here is the case for the latter conclusion. We always give our opponents a fair go first. The argument would run as follows. Our book appeared just as the second phase of the double-dip recession was coming to an end. We can't be entirely sure, but it seems likely that figures next week will confirm that Britain returned to growth in the third quarter, the quarter that began in July. Furthermore, the party conference season that's just ended showed that Far from descending into a banana republic struggle for power among corrupt factions headed by vaguely plausible, good-looking young men, our political system is in good health. In their different ways, each of the leaders delivered serious and thoughtful addresses to the nation. And finally, surely the London 2012 Games epitomised everything that was wrong with our thesis. They were supposed to be a disaster and turned out to be a triumph. They were supposed to shine a bright torch into the dodgy wiring and faulty plumbing of our national home and instead showcased our organisational genius. They were supposed to put on display a fractious and divided society, divided not least between the VIP elite that was going to sweep through Olympic London along special traffic routes with the rest of us stuck in the slow lane, and instead they displayed a relaxed, gregarious and tolerant nation committed simultaneously to excellence in all things, and to celebrating its vibrant diversity. Well, if you put things that way, and the how-are-we-doing question would seem to answer itself. Not well, boys. Your timing is atrocious. You'll be lucky to get your next book published by one of those outfits based in the Holloway Road with a glorified duplicator instead of a printing press and a strict policy of no advances, which arises from its equally strict policy of not having any money. Well, we're happy to take those criticisms square on. We think a decent piece of analysis doesn't get blown about hither and thither by short-term developments. To take the three main lines of attack, we at no time suggested that the economy would shrink forever, nor that the party leaders would be incapable of making half-decent speeches from time to time, nor that London 2012 would be an unmitigated disaster. So what did we say? Well, in short, we said that a third world economy exhibits certain features, that our own economy exhibits plenty of them already, and that before too long, a qualitative change will have taken place. The British economy will have moved from the developed to the developing category. So what are these features? Well, they include, in no particular order, 
a hankering for charismatic political leadership that will deliver a feel-good vision of the country as a place with good values, an enviable global reputation, and, of course, a dynamic economy. Then there was the reality, the economic lethargy, the mountainously self-satisfied public sector organisations, immodest despite having so much to be modest about, and the rapacious pseudo-private sector, from banks to utility companies, all simultaneously rooking the customer while using their political connections to ensure light-touch regulation and quite often outright subsidies. The real private sector isn't much better, unfortunately. For every butcher, baker and candlestick maker pursuing an honest and competitive enterprise, there seems to be a dodgy operator cold-calling individuals to sell them flaky investments, managing insurance claims in the interests of one party against the other, promoting mobile phone services, the tariffs of which are almost impossible to understand and to compare and so forth, and that we haven't even talked about the city and its endless churning of corporate assets through mergers and acquisitions that overall have been proved not even to add to shareholder value, let alone to do anything for the community at large. Above all, these factors are some simply, above all these, above all these factors are some simple identifying features of a third world economy. One, economic policy is capricious and contradictory and displays no consistent line. Two, there are repeated scoldings from the big man leaders of the country about the need to work harder, drink less and so forth, and they alternate with assurances that the population is wonderfully inventive and productive. Initiatives appear and are then never seen again. The leadership elite has a love-hate relationship with the independent middle and professional classes, simultaneously disliking their independence, while being painfully aware that it needs their members to make things work. In parallel with this, there are constant attempts by the ruling group to ally itself with the real people out there, the real country, the great mass of people who are allegedly being denied professional careers and university places by this parasitic middle professional class. Of course, the ruling group's members actually come from much grander backgrounds than the people they're attacking, but that is also fully in accord with third world practice. There is a fondness for starting wars for which sufficient troops and equipment are not available, and there is a large, heavy-handed, but curiously ineffectual police and security apparatus. Above all, perhaps most important, certainly most important economically, is the fact that such a country is unable, chronically unable over a long period of time, to pay its way in the world. It is hopelessly dependent on money and goods from overseas, along with skilled migrant workers, to do the, to do the jobs that a poorly educated native work, workforce cannot. Now, some of you may be as old as I am and can remember that 1978 was the year of the three popes. But here's a trick. What was the year of the three Michaels? It was the last time we had a balance of payments surplus. <coughs> Michael Foote led the Labour Party into an election. Michael Jackson recorded Thriller. And Michael Caine started opposite Julie Walters in Educating Rita. Well, being over the wrong side of 50, I can tell you, it was 1983. That was the last time we had a balance of payments surplus. We have been in debt to the rest of the world every single year since then. And having been assured for the last 29 years that there was absolutely nothing to worry about in this state of affairs that globalised markets and capital flows mean that worrying about the balance of payments is about as old-fashioned as worrying about whether or not divorcees have turned up at Royal Ascot, what do we find? Our international net asset position, that is to say the total of what we own abroad minus what foreigners own here, is negative, 
to the tune of £325.6 billion at the end of the second quarter of this year. Just remember, overseas investment is what we're supposed to be good at. That's how good we are. But should you have wondered where the loss of companies such as Cadbury or assets such as Heathrow Airport would show up in our national accounts, that's it. But what do you expect? He who calls the piper doesn't just call the tune, they end up owning the band as well, and that is what's happening. So, how have things developed since June and the publication of our book? Well, on the trade front, things got worse when we were told they were about to get better. The deficit on trading goods widened to £9.8 billion in August from £7.3 billion in July. So the rebalancing of the economy, in the uh, coalition's phrase, away from consumption and towards exports has yet to take place, if it ever will. And only yesterday, the Independent Item Club, which uses the Treasury's own computer model of the economy and is sponsored by the accountant Ernst & Young, produced its latest forecast. The good news is that Item sees a return to growth. The bad news is that the engines of growth will not be our factories, laboratories, mines, quarries or textile mills, but those two good old standbys, the consumer and mortgage lending. Item's chief economic advisor, Professor Peter Spencer, put it succinctly. Quote, it will be the wrong kind of growth, but at least it is growth, end quote, which is certainly one way of looking at it. Well, perhaps this, even this wrong sort of growth will persuade our corporate treasurers to make some investments. Because, of course, along with exports, we were supposed to see a boom in private sector investment as the private sector, its confidence strengthened as government got out of the way as a result of austerity, did whatever it is people are supposed to do with plates. I never quite got this. Do they step up on them or onto them or over them or smash them or something? Anyway, invest. The private sector was meant to invest. Alas, it has not happened. Corporate Britain has continued to hoard money. The cash balances of private non-financial companies are thought to be worth over £754 billion, a staggering 50% of GDP. But business investment last year increased by only 1.2%. Well, given that we have near zero interest rates, that is a £754 billion bet on continued economic decline in Britain. There's no other way of looking at it. But then investment in emerging markets, or in our case a submerging market, always tends to be cautious and sporadic. Anyway, elsewhere, how's our thesis standing up? Well, I suppose as authors trying to stand up an argument, we ought to be grateful to the energy companies, who in the last few days have announced whopping price rises in what seems a demonstration of a suspicious absence of competition. Apparently, they all bought their energy supplies forward and all their forward contracts appear to have expired at exactly the same time. Well, I'm sure that's in, entirely as it should be. Uh, there was the fiasco over the franchising of the West Coast Main Line, which showed that if the Rolls-Royce civil service ever existed, it doesn't anymore. High Speed 2 is a £30 billion welfare check to the coalition's friends in the civil engineering industry, and is a sort of pointless white elephant worthy of the unlamented Emperor Bacassa. So last week we heard the government is determined to press ahead with it. Then there has been a welter of bizarrely contradictory statements from an officialdom that seems to have lost all interest in consistency or credibility. Thus, earlier this year, the Treasury said it would not be responsible for any bonds issued by the Scottish, by the Scottish Government. This has nothing to do with independence, by the way. This is the Scottish Government as currently constituted. And last weekend, it emerged that it probably, by its own admission, would have to guarantee them. 
Thus, in August, it emerged that the near £1 billion that the minister claimed to have saved business through cutting red tape was not audited and seemed to have been dreamed up out of thin air. Thus, in late July, two intriguing aspects of the working of modern British government came to light. One was that official statistics that measure the benefit received by the public from services such as health, education and travel subsidies are calculated simply on the basis of what they cost. Presumably, we ought to be grateful for all those inevitable cost overruns on defence projects on the basis that every one of them makes us safer than we were before. The second related to the disclosure that on top of the usual public borrowing and on top of the shareholdings in the rescued banks that Larry was talking about, the taxpayer could be at risk for £612 billion as the government has indulged in an orgy of loan guarantees, incentive schemes, public-private partnerships and outsourcing contracts, all hidden off the public's balance sheet. Neither have what you might call the atmospherics of British life in the last few months done much to undermine our line of argument. Indeed, certain organisations seem determined to back us up, for which, again, we're very grateful. A special vote of thanks goes to Staffordshire Police, who were behind the M6 toll road incident in which the above-mentioned constabulary behaved like a banana republic militia and imprisoned innocent people on a closed-down motorway for four hours, treated them like criminals, waved lots of guns around, and had the affrontery afterwards to claim that their response had been proportionate. The trigger for this major security alert, as it was described, in case you've forgotten, had been a coach passenger puffing on an electronic cigarette. <laughs> it's ten years on Sunday since I gave up real cigarettes, so I'm not quite sure these, how these things work, but apparently they are like the real thing, but give off only a colourless vapour. This had been reported by a jumpy motorist, convinced it was something more sinister. And this particular force, as with most of the other ones, has long since had its common sense surgically removed. Nor was this force alone in apparently trying to help us. As I noted in my blog on July 14, it seemed at times as if our publisher's publicity department was pulling lots of strings. There was a blackout of the O2 mobile phone service, the NatWest computer glitch, depriving millions of people of access to their money, the shamble over House of Lords reform, precisely one of the potential constitutional flashpoints we'd highlighted in the book, followed by the announcement without any pretense whatsoever that this was not a tit-for-tat matter of factional advantage of the withdrawal of Liberal Democrat support for boundary changes and, of course, the farcical news that security company G4S was 4,000 people short of its Olympic detail. Now, 4,000 is not far short of a brigade strength, which was fitting somehow as it was the army that had to be drafted in to plug the gaps. As for the Olympic Games themselves... A much-touted success story of the year, and I take on board what Larry said fully, I'll confine myself to just two remarks. One, to, mis- to misquote Brecht, lucky the land that has no need to spend nine billion quid finding out what its national character might be. Two, I was more than a little alarmed at some of the coverage of the opening ceremony and detected an alarming number of appearances of the E-word. The E-word is exuberant. Well, what's the problem? Well, I'm old enough to remember 30, 40, 50 or more years ago, this word was commonly employed by people in Britain and possibly the United States and other English-speaking countries to describe carnivals and parades and so forth in locations such as Latin America and the West Indies. I suppose these mentions were mostly well-intentioned, but they do seem rather patronising with the benefit of hindsight. And they do suggest that the locals really knew how to have a good time, 
even if they weren't much good at anything else. You know, the, the important stuff that could safely be left to serious industrialized Western nations. Other words you need to watch out for in this context are joyous, fiery, and uninhibited. Now, I'm, of course, delighted that the rest of the world thinks we British have a great sense of rhythm, but I'm not sure how much good it will do us in a world of increasing economic competition and rivalry over energy, food, and water. Taking all this evidence together, let us suppose it points to the fact that four months after, public, after publication, going south's main argument is holding good, however it may fare well or badly uh, in the light of future events. Does it matter? Do we care if we leave the World Premier League into a lower division of some sort? Well, the first thing to remember is that we are not talking about a quantitative change within a group of developed countries, losing a few places here and there on a league table. Easy come, easy go. We are talking about a qualitative change from developed to undeveloping status. That could be argued that even this is of little importance. It was the great jurist Sir Henry Maine who famously described the advance of civilization as being from status to contract. In other words, from a society in which people were things, King of England or Prince Archbishop of Salzburg or whatever, to one in which people did things and were rewarded for it. Now, I've got a soft spot for Sir Henry Maine, given that my junior boarding house at school was named after him. But I think his notion has limits. We have only to look at the very many moves in the 124 years since his death, moves from contract back to status in such fields as the trade union closed shop, and in our own time, the credentialization of even semi-skilled jobs, for each of which you need the right bit of paper before you can do it. Status matters. Membership of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development leads to lower borrowing costs for the government concerned. And anyway, status and contract, being and doing, are not always or even usually separate things. Status derives from lots and lots of little contracts. What you are is the sum of what you do. Rousseau declared that there was no such thing as love, just evidence of it. Similarly, Larry and I don't seek a cast-iron definition of an emerging market or third-world economy, merely evidence of one. We hope, as I have said earlier, that we have amassed a sufficient pile of such evidence. And we believe that it does matter, that submerging market status threatens real impoverishment for millions of real people, and inability for the economy to deliver reliably, and that's key, reliably, the staples of life, food, housing, fuel, electrical power, even water. Developing countries need a development plan. Such a plan can concede a dominant role to market forces, as has been the case in some of the tiger economies of the Far East and Eastern Europe. Or it can provide for a much stronger state direction, as seen elsewhere in the Far East and in Scandinavia. There seems some glimmer of understanding in official circles that this is the case, that we need a plan. We are apparently to have an economic development bill, although no one seems very clear as to what will be in it. In his budget in March, the Chancellor set out his industrial strategy. Not entirely surprisingly, the emphasis was on science, aerodynamics, green technology, the creative sector, and so forth. Quote, that's what a modern industrial policy looks like, quotes, he said. Well, absolutely. The trouble is, this is what everyone's industrial policy looks like. All developed countries want to get into green technology, bioscience, and high-end manufacturing. Furthermore, George Osborne's industrial enthusiasm was spoilt somewhat by the announcement elsewhere in his budget statement that he and his colleagues were, quotes, working to develop London as a new offshore centre for the Chinese currency. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound to me like a decisive rejection of the spirit of the 80s, especially as we are supposed these days to disapprove of offshore centres. So, don't expect a concrete, coherent development plan anytime soon. 
although a major economic crisis could certainly speed the plough in this regard. Going south has not, therefore, helped yet to trigger a revolution in economic policy. Until it does, if it ever does, we will be satisfied, we'll be quite happy, simply to have explained to our readers what we think is happening uh, so they can take the appropriate action. After all, our central contention is that it does not make much sense to view the British economy as a member of the developed world and that people will make better choices and will see things more clearly if they view it as a submerging market economy. Let's imagine a couple has been invited for something to eat one evening at a neighbour's house. Husband and wife turn up smartly dressed with a bottle of wine, some flowers and some chocolates, imagining a conventional dinner party. They enter a house full of loud music, an impromptu buffet and a huge screamy crowd of people. Now, they could cling to the idea that at any moment the host and hostess will lead them through to a dining room, at which a proper meal will be served and polite conversation will take place. Well, if they do that, they'll end up being hungry. More fruitfully, they could grab something to eat, have a couple of drinks and make the best of it. I end where Larry ended, with a call to get real, to be realistic, to take the reality check, or the reality test if you prefer, and to pass it. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you very much. So, we have plenty of time left for questions. Before I forget, I should just announce that after uh, we've finished, there will be the opportunity to buy a copy of the book. This is my well-summed copy of it. Um, and get it signed. I've already taken advantage of this opportunity. Um, so, the way this is going to work is you buy the book outside, where I believe they are... Uh, displayed and bring it back in here where Larry and Dan will, will, will sign it. Okay? So now um, we're going to have about half an hour of Q&A. Um, the rules are as follows. Uh, I don't get many opportunities to exercise arbitrary power. This is the only chance I get. I'm going to choose people more or less uh, in an attempt to be balanced and respect the order in which you've uh, put your hand up, but I make no promises. I almost certainly not achieve that. Um, so just be patient and we'll try and give everybody a shot. Uh, keep your questions short, concise, and make them questions, please. Uh, this is close to our hearts. Most of us live in this country, so it's an emotive topic. Um, but don't just give us a rant or your own personal version of why Britain is so terrible. Uh, ask a question. And we'll take them in groups of three. Okay, so this is the way it's going to work. There are roving mics, so if, you, if you're picked out, uh, a mic should work its way towards you. Right, I'm going to start um, up there at the top. One, one there, you, sir, in the red T-shirt. Um, one here and, and one here. Go uh, ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'm Douglas Coker from uh, the Green Party. Um, I've, been, um, I've been reminded, informed, and entertained. Thank you very much. But I'm a bit concerned about there being no mention of the pursuit of the Green Agenda. This question may be familiar to you, Larry. I asked you it before in Enfield, if you recall. Um, we meet all over the place, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, so to two questions, really. Um, this scenario you're, you're, you're spelling out, is, is it a, a big threat to the pursuit of the green economy? Or, alternatively, maybe is the pursuit of the green economy um, part of the solution? Yep, next one was down here. Uh, <clears throat> two questions. We've heard the diagnosis. Um, what is, in your view, is a potential cure? What can be done to make things better? 
And secondly, more limited, um, what is your view of the emerging attitudes and policies of the opposition, the Labour Party, to tackling the British economy? And uh, down here? Yeah. Uh, Nasser Kalawun. Um, since the British economy shows many uh, traits similar to the EU, uh, the Eurozone, um, Germany, for instance, got achieved a, a superb economic uh, record, and it's inside the Eurozone. So can one uh, kind of put it in reverse to say why Germany has succeeded where Britain has failed and get the opposite view of your book to say, you know, the, for success? And a small comment about the British... You didn't make any distinguish among the financial elite in the last hundred years between political parties. Are you saying that the teams are the same, especially as many of them come from institutions that failed Lehman Brothers or whatever in the city? Thank you. Okay. Um, um, I'll do the green. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, maybe a bit of the other stuff. Um, let's start with the green agenda. I mean, I, I certainly think that the green agenda could be part of part of the solution. Yes, I mean, I remember um, it's sort of, as the weight of iron, really, I remember going to hear Michael Heseltine speak in I think 1991 where he said that um, Britain needed to um, wise up to the fact that uh, green economics was going to be a big part of, of, of the, the future of the planet and that the countries that got in first into green technology and uh, environmental technologies were going to clean up because there were monopoly profits to be earned there. There was such a big a big, a big agenda, um, and he said he warned that it was at the CBI. And he warned the CBI that uh, if Britain didn't do it, then in 20 years' time it would sit there and watch uh, with regret at how far other countries—Sweden, Germany, Japan, France, America—had gone. And that's happened, sadly. I mean, I think we have actually, um, to an extent, missed the boat. Um, but we, we do have the potential to make um, the green agenda part of the solution that goes on to the second question. The cure, I think, is... I mean, I, th I think that... You know, I take my... Back to my football analogy, what you do if you're a manager, you, you, you go into a struggling club, you first of all make the players um, uh, wise up to how poorly they've been playing. You don't... Sort of, um, so that's the first thing. I think we actually need to sort of be honest about our predicament. I think the second thing to do is, you know, you, the second thing the manager would do is train the players harder and make them more skillful and actually learn them some new, some new techniques and actually get them to play better. So, you know, education's a big thing, skills are a big thing. Uh, and thirdly, you have to actually start to actually work on your areas of comparative advantages and say these are the areas that, uh, these are the areas that we can work on to make ourselves more successful. I mean, that's certainly what, um, you know, the big... Uh, successful post-war countries did, including Germany, in fact. I mean, they actually played to their strengths. They, they actually organised their life around a long-term plan, so they had long-term finance, good relationships between the banks and industry. They had a very good system of apprenticeships. They had a very good education system. Um, and they had, you know, they, they, they developed very, very good products with good pre-sales and after-sales service. And I think that, that is, there is no real substitute for actually putting in the hard work and, 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 and actually putting in, in place a long-term plan. I think that's. I, I, I don't really think Germany being in or out of the EU, uh, inside the euro, or Britain being in or out of the euro, has got much to do with it. In some ways, Germany's, Germany was more successful, certainly more successful for the bulk of the population before it joined the euro uh, than it did now, even though its exports are doing really well. So I don't think that's really got that much to do. It's more a question of whether you can actually um, realise just where you are and where you want to be and have some sort of 
direction of travel that you're going to go on for a quite, quite a long period of time. I mean, I, I don't see, I don't see um, much difference between any of the political parties in this country, all of whom seem to see glaring defects when they're in opposition, but then suddenly become very panglossian about the state of the economy when they come into, come into power. So, I mean, George Osborne, I mean, I agree, and Vince Cable, I agree with an awful lot of their criticisms of the state of the economy uh, under Labour, but now they're in power, they have the same sort of um, somewhat starry-eyed view of things that, that Labour exhibited, and no doubt Labour will exhibit the same sort of bullish self-confidence if and when they become uh, the next government. As you be fair, I mean, completely forensically, however one votes, whatever, Labour doesn't have an economic policy at the moment, and, and has said it hasn't. So um, I, I think we, we could set around all evening guessing about what it might be. I'm not sure that's really very uh, constructive. Um, Similarity to the Eurozone, I mean, yeah, which part? I mean, as Larry was saying, Germany and other parts are hugely productive. Um, Germany keeps getting picked on. I mean, I was, as was Larry, always dead against Britain having anything to do with the single currency. But, I mean, you know, we're hearing a lot of stuff about how Germany has cheated somehow. I mean, did it go in at too low a rate or too high a rate, or did it force other people to do this and that? Germany, Germany appears to have been successful through uh, having a very low exchange rate. Even I remember it was four marks of the pound. Uh, and then it was forced by John Connolly and others in the American government to, to upvalue its currency. It was very still successful. It went through the oil crisis, and it doesn't have any oil, and it was still successful, and so on through the 80s, through reunification. So uh, I don't think we can say Germany has cheated somehow. It's been tested under all different conditions and appears to be a very productive economy. Uh, would that we had something um, similar. As for diagnosis, which was the, the first part of the second question, um, our diagnosis is we are a developing country and need a development plan. The shape that that takes isn't for us to say, um, but there are two broad ways of doing it. One is to rely very heavily on uh, kind of trade uh, and free market forces, and the other is to have a, have a much more um, uh, much more much more planned uh, way forward. Um, the thing is, it needs to be long term, and people need to need to kind of settle on it. Uh, there's no sign of it happening now. But as I said in my remarks, I think yeah, we could we could. Think Things would be accelerated by whatever may be the next crisis, and who knows what that will be, whether it's a Middle East war or, or um, uh, a, a final collapse in the Eurozone or something, I don't know. Or the fiscal cliff, which we're still not over or not over or whatever. Okay, so we have gentlemen in the front row upstairs here, gentlemen at the back downstairs, and just to make you all... Move around a bit. Uh, nobody there at the back. There's a woman there. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll get you next time. Yeah, just like to say, isn't this um, really, these crises are just really uh, the boom and bust cycle that we're going through in capitalism that has always done the same, gone through boom and bust, and we're on a downward cycle. Um, I mean, really, is the real problem capitalism, the crisis in capitalism, brought on by the, the, the rate of profit, the falling rate of profit, where capitalists take their money from one business and they put it into another business? That's why we're suffering in England, uh, Britain so much is because we sold out our manufacturing a long time ago when the Germans kept hold of theirs. Um, the other thing that you didn't say much about was the offshoring that happens in this country. That rich, uh, you know, companies where they put their, you know, they make their money in this country and they put it into Cayman Islands or whatever, you know. I mean, I think it's a crisis in capitalism, and until we change the means of production, nothing's going to happen. We're just kicking the can down the road. Okay, thanks. 
Yeah, wouldn't you agree that the roots of our uh, current problems go back to the 80s, not least between 81 and 83, uh, he, um, Thatcher Howe's economic policies, which devastated manufacturing industry, and also the lack of investment, the waste of our North Sea oil proceeds and gas proceeds, instead of being invested in infrastructure, lowering taxes. Uh, House of Commons Select Committee I was on at the time, uh, France and Germany had 15,000 freight loading points between them, we had 700. And, of course, we know the whole saga of the lack of high-speed train between the Eurotunnel and London and, of course, the endless saga of London Airport, which I just think epitomises uh, the planning paralysis and the inability of any government to make a decision but kicking the can down the road. Okay, okay thanks. There at the back. Hi. Um, I think just recently uh, they tried to sell another great British company called British Aerospace. Do you think that's the last gasp of the Euro-Federalists? Do you think that anybody should be held accountable for such kind of decisions? And then, apart from excluding your very, very good book, do you think that generally journalists, to some extent, should bear quite a responsibility in the sense that investigative journalism does not seem to get practiced as much as previously? Okay. Um I take the, the first point. I mean, I think in our book we say one of the. It's interesting. I think the the the, uh, the Marxist interpretation of the crisis has actually gained in strength as the years have gone on. I mean, you know, there have been certain numbers, certain people. I think who've been who've actually had their reputations enhanced by the crisis. And there's a, there's a group of Keynesian economics, you know, the Hyman Minsky School, who talk talk about the sort of build up of. Uh, financial boom bust. There's sort of the, the green, the green critique of, of, of overconsumption, and certainly the sort of Marxist idea that the financialization of the economy is a direct result of the falling rate of profit in manufacturing. I think that's a very, very interesting and fruitful avenue to pursue. And I think that that's certainly the reason that certainly in the U.S. and the U.K. there has been this drift away from the, the what we would call the real economy to the virtual economy, because the rate of profit in manufacturing was seen as is relatively low, and that's the same explanation for the offshore. And really, it was both, both was an attempt to actually uh, raise the, the rate of profit. So yes, I think you know, I think Marx has had a very good crisis. Uh, to be honest with you, um, uh, I, the second question um, about squandering of North Sea, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you look at what's happened to um, Norway, which had half the half the North Sea, and we had the other half, uh, it's now got a sovereign wealth fund. I think worth something like four or five hundred billion pounds to pay for the ageing of the, its population and for higher social costs. And uh, we've got diddly squat. You know, uh, the oil, the oil, oil and gas production is either is between half and two-thirds down on its peak. Uh, the, the wells are rapidly running dry. And uh, instead of putting the money away in a nice little piggy bank somewhere, we blew it all on tax cuts and... Um, and that money either could have been used as a long-term sovereign wealth fund or it could have been used, I think, would have been better used in the UK's case to actually retool, refit, remake the economy in the 1980s rather than turn it into some sort of gigantic offshore hedge fund. So I think I absolutely agree with you that the, you know, that was the once-in-a-lifetime once opportunity to do the transition in a relatively painless way. We now have, still have to do the transition, but it's going to be a hell of a lot more painful because we haven't got the dosh. 
Do you want to do the other bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, just going up there, you said the, the, the questioner asked, it said the roots of the problem were 1981 83. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I, mean I was a business correspondent, a very flinching sort of one in 1983. We were still in an industrial economy then. Um, and in fact, the water workers, water, water workers went on strike that year and beaten us. Actually, everyone's forgotten this now. Uh, because of the debacle of the miners' strike, which, which began the following year and concluded the year after. So I think, just, just as a matter of this is a rather finicky point, I think uh, it was the mid-80s onwards, the period Larry and I call the no strategy, strategy period, uh, when this really took root. Um, and, and, and just to be clear, as Larry said, I, I completely agree that we wasted North Sea oil, but you can't have a sovereign wealth fund and spend it on British industry. It's one or the other. And I, I think I would have preferred to have spent it on uh, British industry. Uh, the gentleman mentioned planning. Uh, we need to be a bit careful here. There was a feeling up until the 70s that the planners always got their way, whether it was knocking down houses people enjoyed living in and building horrible tower blocks. And there was an enormous reaction against this, um, which even I'm old enough to remember. Uh, uh, Covent Garden was going to be flattened and lots of tower blocks put there. And, in fact, it was saved so that people can do street theatre and, and rip off tourists. I mean, you may, say, <laughs> you, may, you may not think that's a great advantage, but, but that, that was... That was a, a bit, and, and, and indeed, London Third Airport plan in the early 70s. So to say that we've now got this, this bogged-down planning system where no one can build a couple of runways uh, overnight, well, I mean, that was, that's part of the plan. That was, that was part of the counter-revolution. If you want to counter-counter-revolution, that's fine, but um, just so we know where we are. Uh, BAE, I don't know if it's the last gasp of Euro-federalism. I think it's uh, certainly when Larry and I wrote our first book, there was lots of excitement in Europe about a thing called Euroco, which was going to be this gigantic defence and uh, civil aviation company. It was just a working title. And it would build these gigantic, like the Tin Zeppelin, the A380, this vast double-decker uh, airliner. And it would also build the Eurofighter and all the various other things. Uh, so it's one of those ideas that comes around um, how much it's driven. But I think the Euro-Federalists may have other problems at the moment rather than uh, building swing-wing missiles or whatever. Uh, so I, I think it was just a corporate cock-up by biggest beautiful corporate boardroom types. Um, and finally, did, journalism, did journalists bear some of the blame? Well, I think there is something in that. Um, Larry and I have worked through a period where um, certainly financial journalists, an awful lot of them, were uncritical about the people they wrote about. Um, uh, and phrases such as private equity and, uh, and, uh, and so on. And, uh, and Fred the Shred, I remember, was a great hero of some of them. So, yeah, uh, I think there was a tendency to hire younger people who were less critical and... Uh, Oh, we kept our jobs, I hasten to add, so there's no... Yeah, I think you always have to be yeah. careful when you, when you start reading the profiles of certain people. So who is he, the, the new blonde, blue-eyed financier who's passionate about opera and sailing? You know, when you start, reading, when you read, start reading <laughs> those glowing profiles of people and you don't really, by the time you've ended it, understand quite what they're doing, that's always a big warning sign that there's trouble <laughs> Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to introduce... Um, a cut-off for this uh, round. Nobody who's actually lived through a British trade surplus is allowed to ask a question here. Um, that cuts or, it down. Or, or otherwise, you know, anyone who was alive when Thriller was actually released <laughs> is excluded. So we've got one question at the back there. Um, this is going to put my eyesight to the test. Uh, you down here and... Anybody upstairs that meets the age criterion? You're not that young. Okay, yeah, you. Okay. Um, just wait one second while... I hope all these people are buying books on the way out. They're, they're, <laughs> getting, they're getting first in the queue so they don't miss out. Okay, fire away. Uh, my question is, um, don't you think the ballooning share of um, 
the financial sector with respect to GDP is partly responsible for this problem the UK is currently going through. Do you get my question? Okay. Uh, could you maybe repeat it? Don't you think the ballooning share that the expansion of the financial sector with respect to GDP? The share of financial sector yeah, 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 in GDP. GDP, yeah, is responsible is for, responsible the, for, the, yeah, for the, the shrinking of the real sector. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, who did we have next? Um, you. Um, you're keen to point out the flaws of the British economy, but you've kind of neglected some of the bright spots. Uh, we're still competent in education. Uh, we have health care, which is good. We have a high HDI, high life expectancy, a relatively good uh, Gini coefficient. Um, and our infrastructure no, 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 no. is still... Uh, Sorry, I have to correct you. The Gini coefficient is terrible, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, compared Sorry. to emerging economies, which are typically quite high, so... Uh, it's pretty high for a developed country. Um, <laughs> but, but all the others... Lower than America. Um, all the others so how do you respond to these, these kind of bright spots? Uh, okay. okay, thank you. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, very quickly, you said uh, you made reference to 1880 um, when there were these problems before, you know, with the liberalism and so on, and then, uh, you know, things were looking bad for industry. Um, I'd just like to bring it up to today. Several things from the summer, for example, uh, all summer long you've been up in the uh, Arctic uh, looking for oil with Canada first. So if we're talking about rivalry for energy, food, and water... You've been up in north in Canada all summer, uh, looking, remapping the north. Second of all, with India, you've been um, putting through Tesco and all of the food, uh, large food corporations through India, which has now put the country in chaos. Um, and third of all, I'm concerned about the wars. There's someone called Fred Magdoff who talked about a war economy. And uh, I'm, so I'm a little skeptical because I think that there is a part of your society that's making an awful lot of money, and I'm wondering where the wars are going in the Middle East and how much that has to do with business. And also a question here from a fellow beside me about what's going on with your own things in uh, North and South uh, UK, you know, that there's no jobs up North. Uh, the fellow wanted to know. So. Okay, thanks. <laughs> bit, bit sneaky, the second question. That was but, very, very well done, yeah, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, it was yeah, really, yeah, really yeah. good. Um, we'll take it anyway. Do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. No, it's very it's, good. It's, it's, it's very, very efficient to do it that way. Very communal. Right? Yeah, it's the first question first, which is probably the best way of doing it. Uh, yeah, we, we do agree. We do think that the, 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 the expansion of the financial sector relative to the rest of the economy has been a, a problem. Uh, it, it, goes, it goes back a while. Um, uh, the, first, the, first, uh, the first attempt at this was in the early 70s, and it all went to custard. And so I think we thought we dodged a bullet there. Uh, well, we hadn't. It was, simply, um, it was simply flying around before it came and hit us again. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a sector that is involved in moving money around. I mean, how difficult is that? Um, you talk about privatization. As Robin Ramsey said, you know, what do you have to do if you privatize a company? You underprice the shares. You print lots of coupons in the papers. The checks come in, and then you send the shares out. Nothing there could not be done by Hull City Council Housing Benefit Office. So we're talking about a sector that not only is, is, is much bigger than it needs to be, but is much more well remunerated even now than it needs to be. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, th I think that the point about do we ignore all the good things? Well, actually, I did mention the fact that we do have world-class universities, um, pharmaceutical companies, 
uh, you know, BBC, the IMF actually did actually explicitly say that there are bright spots in the economy. So we, didn't, we don't entirely ignore the good points because there obviously are good points. The other, the other thing you have to remember is that this book is meant to be something of a polemic. It's not meant to be an academic track where we have one bit that says uh, these are the good things and these are the bad things, these are the good things, these are the bad things. It's meant to be a wake-up call. So obviously we accentuate the negative rather than the positive uh, because that's the point of the book to actually say, you know, we need to buck up our act because although we do have good sectors of the economy, generally the picture of the economy is pretty bad. And, and, and one of the reasons it's bad is because people constantly go around saying, yes, but isn't Glaxo a great company, which of course it is. Isn't Rolls-Royce a good company? Of course it is. But when you look at it, something like 50% of all the civil R&D in this country is dominated by those two sectors, pharmaceuticals uh, and aerospace. Uh, and, and lots of the economy, you know, we don't have a machine tools industry. We don't have, you know, large, large, you know, we don't, we don't have the sort of industrial capacity or the depth of, of, of industrial capacity that the Germans have. And that's because we delude ourselves into thinking that we're, we're really, really good because we've got one or two good, good world-class companies out there. I mean, that, that is part of the problem. Um, Yes, yeah, so, well, I mean, just to pick up on that, one of the, I was on you and yours ages and ages ago, and somebody said, I was up against a guy from the CBI, it was a pretty nice bloke, and he said you know, that I was talking down our great manufacturing successes. And I said, our manufacturing successes speak for themselves. If you're talking to a guy who claims to eat nothing but lettuce and mineral water, and are they still putting on weight? You know that on top of the lettuce and the mineral water, there are the cheeseburgers and the puff, puff cream stuff. And the proof of the pudding is our deficit in manufactured goods. People say there are some great stories out there. I'm sure there are, but they're not that good, are they? Because since, I mean, since before 1983 is the total balance on all our things, including services. Since way back when, we have not run a, a, a balance on manufactured goods. So all these wonderful, fantastic tales. And actually, as Larry was saying, we're running a polemic. If you want to read about how fantastic, all the fantastic good tales out there, go on the Department for Business website, because they have a whole section on this, and it's paid for by you, the taxpayer. Uh, unlike us, and we're not. Um, so go read that. I mean, that, that, that's, um, uh, that, that's the place to go. Uh, the, the, the last question, I mean, the, the well, last two questions, in fact, uh, nefarious British activities in India and the Arctic, I couldn't agree. I'm sure that's absolutely correct. Um, uh, uh, I'm sure that's correct. I'm sure there are people making money and misbehaving. Um, uh, uh, as for the war economy, we're not a war economy. We, are, we fight wars without having a war economy, which is... One of, the, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the problems that we have. Uh, North-South divide, yeah, we, we approach that in the, in the I mean, the, the, in terms of the North-South divide, I mean, quite clearly the, the, the government, the last government's regional policy, such as it was, was to just rake off money from a city which was booming out of control, and it just uh, spent the money in the North. I mean, you know, there was no private sector job creation in the northern regions of this country uh, for the entire period that the new Labour government was in power. Um, and that is the reality. I mean, there, there was jobs growth, but it was entirely in the public sector. And, of course, now the economy has, has cratered um, and the government has imposed an austerity programme. There is no longer, and the city is no longer throwing off the same amount of money that it was before, uh, the government doesn't have the money to recycle into the north. Um, and it's relying on the fact that withdrawing the public sector from the northern regions will somehow lead to um, a... Uh, dramatic revival in business confidence and the arrival of the private sector to uh, make these regions strong again. I just think that is utter, utter fantasy. It's not going to happen. What's going to happen is that those regions are going to become more and more impoverished. And if we do have the sort of um, 
uh, growth that uh, Peter Spencer's talking about in the housing market and in the, um, you know, and, and, and in the retail sector, the traditional sort of UK recovery, then that divide is going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, you know, even, even the great white hope of having a house building boom, if that happens, where do you think the houses are going to be built? They're going to be built down here. They're not going to be built north of the line from the Bosch to the Severn Estuary, that's for sure. So, you know, everything, everything about what we know about the economy in the last five years suggests that that divide is very, very stark and going to get even starker. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think we've got time for another round. I'm going to e- exercise priority uh, to people with as few demographic characteristics as those of us sitting up here on stage as possible. And let's see how that works out. So um, just up there, um, first row on the left, wearing a color that I'm... Cerise. Cerise, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, You down there uh, with the glasses on top of your head? Yeah, that's you. They are there. I've seen them. And... um, um, and, And you there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go, go. Okay. Um, Linda Corsha. Um, isn't the core problem with um, with change is the lack of real pub- real information in the public sphere, um, particularly not just the activity of the City of London, but the complete dominance of the City of London over government policy, both domestic policy and UK uh, policy into the EU and into international trade. And isn't that your job, to be telling people? Okay. Um, I, I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the future of housing and um, the fact that lots of property in London especially is owned by people from overseas. It seems a lot of flight money has come to London, so the bubble increases. And the fact that people that live in London have no place to live, that coupled with the fact that about five years ago on Anne Robinson's Test the IQ show, uh, it, it came to the conclusion that the group in England with the highest IQ were the people on the dole the unwaged. Seriously. Seriously. Okay? My question is, in light of all this, if you're a person with talent and initiative, should we just move? (laughs) (laughs) We can't live here. Good question. Right. And we have a question over here as well. Um, uh, Regarding the cure, you say you need a long-term plan, but do you think the government should take a more Keynesian approach and start um, intervening and investing, or would it better taking a free market approach and let the market fix itself? Okay. Okay. Right, okay. I mean, I think we do say, uh, in answer to the first question from Linda, that, as you said, there's been institutional capture of the policy-making machine. I don't think we can be much clearer than that. I mean, there's been a revolving door at the Treasury for years and years and years, uh, whereby you know, it attracts people from the city and, uh, and, and throws people out the other end and they go back into the city. And the, 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 there's been, obviously, there's been massive capture of the political machine here by, by the City of London, which has seen its political influence, which is always quite considerable. I mean, was, I mean even back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, there was considerable influence, but I mean, it's, it's become ever more marked, I think, and, and, and very dangerous for the conduct of uh, policy in this country. I mean, you know, if you look at, back at the five euro tests, there was only one sector of the economy that had its own test, and that was the City of London. 
Uh, they didn't have a test to see what the impact of the euro was going to be on manufacturing, but they did have one to see what it was going to be like um, on, uh, on the city. So, yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally accept the point. And, what, you know, we, we say this in the book loud and clear. Um, the city is, is dangerous and it needs to be reined in and we need to stop institutional capture. I don't think we can be uh, uh, any clearer about it than that. I'll, I'll leave you with the second one. I'm going to take the third one. Um, do I think, I don't know if Dan can speak for himself, do I think we should take a Keynesian approach to this? Yes, I do. And I think we've, we've, lived, we've lived with the free market experiment. Uh, we've seen what happens to industry if you allow... Uh, the free market to run its course. We see what other countries do um, quite successfully in using tax, uh, in using public procurement, in using all sorts of uh, sticks and carrots to uh, develop their industries in the way they want. And it works damn sight better than here, where we've just seen the hollowing out of our productive sector in 25 years. So I would favour a much more interventionist approach, but Dan might have a different view. Um, but um, you know, that's, that's the way I see it. I don't have a different view personally, but I mean, I, I think there's, there's myself and Larry on one side, our book is more forensic, and that's always been when we've been best. And when we started telling people what we think, they tend to kind of yawn and so on. Uh, so, I mean, I think a choice has to be made. I mean, we, 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 I think anyone who knows us and has read anything we've ever written probably guess which side of the argument we come down on. Um, but our point, our, our sort of ab initio point is we've got to have an argument <laughs> at the moment. We're all drifting around and a bit of this and a bit of that. So uh, that would just be my minor contribution there. Uh, future of housing was raised in the London bubble. I mean, this, this is something that started to become apparent uh, when Larry and I first teamed up in the, in the sort of mid-'80s. But London was almost becoming a... Uh, and it's become completely accentuated since then. This was the first stirrings of the idea that it wasn't just a just a, a big city in England with ranking alongside some other important cities, but it's becoming a kind of you know, sovereign state of its own. Um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the London bubble, the London housing bubble, is is very much half a part of that. Um, as for having a high IQ on the dole, I, I was on supplementary benefit for two weeks between O-levels and uh, getting my first job. So I, probably, <laughs> I don't think I really... <laughs> I think possibly my own low IQ is because I didn't spend quite long enough... <coughs> Uh, not quite long enough um, toddling down to Hailsham Job Centre to collect some money. So, uh, uh, so I, I mean, I have no idea. I, I, it, it sounds like a, a lovely idea. Um, and should, they, should they leave? Uh, but yeah, indeed, should we move? Uh, and uh, you know, um, that sounds like a great idea. Light out for the territory. The trouble is, I'm not quite sure what the territory is these days. But it sounds like um, anyone young and uh, and uh, uh, energetic and so on probably ought to think of going and living somewhere else. Uh, I think that's. And I've got three teenage kids and. Uh, I'm not sure that they'll all end up living in either Britain or Ireland. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a sorry thing to say, but I think that's right. Just finally, I mean, the dominance of the city over public policy is true. It's been very strong. And Larry said that there was always influence, even after the war. But the absolute dominance that we've seen is reasonably recent. It uh, started in the mid-'80s, and I think they're still trying to shrug it off, um, partly because the last government had a legacy of it. They'd done some of it, and so they had a <coughs> guilt factor. And the current government has been traditionally quite... Uh, it comes from a... So the, the, the senior coalition partner uh, is a party that's been traditionally quite, quite sympathetic. So we seem to be stuck with at least a residual influence on the city that, that shouldn't really be there. So, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I, I would, could I, there is no more time for questions, I'm afraid. I'm going to abuse my position to just say, say a couple of words. The first is it's kind of ironic that we should have this question about whether people should be leaving because quite a lot of you, if you're a representative sample of a typical LSE audience, have actually moved to come here 
which sort of begs the question, did you make a big mistake and are you going <laughs> to rush uh, to, to, to the exits? Um, but the second point I'd like to make is just really um, a bit of uh, uh, advertising for my academic discipline, which is comparative politics and political economy. And I think some of the questions were about what to do about this state of affairs. And actually, I think you'll uh, have to wait a very long time to find any solutions coming out of the current uh, political and cultural elites in this country. But if you exercise you know, uh, uh, your curiosity and use the tools of comparative analysis and look around you at countries who seem to be doing well, you will find the answers. Um, um, but you do have to look beyond this rather closed community of generally solely Anglophone uh, um, commentators on, on, um, on British affairs. Um, and, um, and of course, that does not refer to our two illustrious guests who have given um, a, a, a fantastic talk. Um, and um, we'd like to uh, thank them very much for coming along.